1: Well, thanks for
0: joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. It is episode 1000. We made it, and I am super excited to share uh, the celebration of this uh, momentous occasion with one of my absolute favorite authors in the whole world and one of my favorite guests on top of that, Craig Johnson. Welcome back to the show, buddy.
1: Oh, my friend, you are overly overly kind, overly kind. (laughs) Congratulations on your one thousandth uh, entry here. This is pretty amazing. Like, wow.
0: yeah, it's 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 crazy. I, I think we've been doing this uh, once a year for like the last six years, and it's uh, it's always the highlight of of my fall. You know, not only do I get a new Walt Longmire book, but uh, you know we get to have Craig to come on and and talk all about Walt and writing and all of that good stuff. So it's always you. a pleasure. to have you Back.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. Please. So,
0: Craig, um, next to last stand, this is the 16th Walt Longmire mystery. Is that right?
1: It is. It's hard for me to believe that because I, I feel like I've only been writing for a couple of years. Um, but evidently, I've been doing this for about 17 years now. So uh, I guess that means I must be having a good time, right? Time is flying. I, guess I think so. Time.
0: I think so. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the last few books um, have have taken some some twists and turns, you know, a couple of books ago, um, Walt goes down to Mexico and there was a completely different type of Longmire mystery that, that spanned two books. And, and then last year, um, you know, he's, uh, Walt's back home kind of licking his wounds, so to speak. And, you know, mysteries never stop. And, you know, things, uh, happen, uh, with, with the wolves and, And, uh, things like that. This book takes another turn that I didn't expect. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, uh, well, first off, let's talk about what, what different direction you take this, this time, because this is a a unique, um, mystery for Walt in that it's a a heist, uh, novel and I. (laughs) I, I love it. I absolutely love that the, oh, the, the new you. direction and, uh, and, and kind of, first off, um, what's the greatest high story in your estimation? What, what uh the, is there a story that just kind of rocked your socks?
1: Oh my goodness. Like there, there's so many of them like I have to try and choose from like that, but the difficulty of course is, is how do you write something along those lines that includes the the, the least populated county and the least populated <laughs> state of America. <laughs> that was the difficulty. Like that, I mean, you know, it was like, and then and then also like it, I mean you obviously want something like that. It can't just be some, you know, uh jewel that has, you know, no connection or anything, you know, sure. with either Wyoming or the American West, you know, or something along those lines. Like it and so I guess, you know, for me, like that uh the 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 catalyst I guess for the whole idea um, became that that painting, like a, that, you know. I guess has been referred to as the most viewed by questionable, inebriated art critics um, in American history. Like, so, and you know, I I know that like to, to tell your listeners, you know, about this, I, I have to kind of give a brief uh, art history lesson, like that, because I, I can just about guarantee that the majority of your listeners have not heard of the artist Cassili Adams, like that. But I can just about guess. That the majority of them have actually seen his work, like okay, that they've seen oh, yeah. his most monumental work, like at uh, Custer's Last Fight. And the reason behind that, of course, being that he painted the painting about 10 years after the, 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 yeah, the Battle of the Little Bighorn in 1876. And um, it toured the US, like it, and then went back to St. Louis, where Cassidy Adams you know, called home. And uh, they weren't quite sure what to do with the painting. I mean, it was like 16 and a half by 10 feet tall. And so um, it was sold, you know, to a saloon keeper um, near the train station there in St. Louis, and put up on his wall as a kind of a conversation piece. Like, you know, you would have people between trains; they would come in, look at, and uh, you know, have a beer and look up, like, look and discuss, you know, the the Little Big Horn battle, which had always been a, a major point of contention, you know, in American history. Like, that simply because it was a battle that we lost, right. um, you know. And this was a technologically advanced country that was playing double headers back in Chicago while. The Seventh Cavalry met its defeat you know out there on the the uh, the banks of the little Bighorn battle uh, little Bighorn river and uh, and so anyway, like it hung there for a number of years, like it, and then what happened, of course, was is what happens with a lot of these you know, these type of uh, establishments. It went out of business, like it, it went bankrupt, and so you know one of the largest creditors they had there in St. Louis was a then small brewery by the name of Budweiser. And, uh, Augie Bush, like it never, you know, to let that money float away, you know, marched into the saloon one day, like it and said, Hey, you owe me $30,000 for all the beer. What are you going to do? And they said, we're bankrupt. We don't have any money. And he looked up on the wall and said, I'll take the painting. So they peel the painting off the wall. He rolls it under his arms. He walks back up to the brewery, you know, rolls it out on a table there in front of his merchandising guys and says, all right, um, we're going to make posters We're going to make posters of this painting, and we're going to put Budweiser down there on the bottom, and we're going to send them to every bar, every saloon, every restaurant in the American West, as long as they're carrying Budweiser beer. And by the time we're done with this promotion, we're going to be a much larger brewery. And boy, did it work with a vengeance, it worked. You know, uh, Anheuser-Busch became one of the largest breweries in the world. And uh, Custer's last fight came to occupy wall space in every single saloon, every single bar, every single restaurant in the American West, and sometimes all over the world. I've had, you know, people have written me and taken pictures, you know, of this particular painting or poster rather, or print, you know, hanging in, you know, bars in Paris, you know, in London, you know, and all over the world like that. And uh, so anyway, like that, you know, it it, it became, you know, a a fixture. And uh, once, you know, Augie Bush got his money out of it, he decided what the heck in a Bit of philanthropic zeal he decided he would give the painting to the seventh cavalry which at that point in time was based in fort bliss texas just outside of el paso he gave the painting to them and it hung on their officers club and uh, commissary wall until 1946 when the commissary burned to the ground and the painting was lost or was it and <laughs> therein lies the mcguffin you know for this particular book um you know this this painting might still be out there floating around and existing, and if it does it's worth like twenty five to thirty million dollars simply because of the cultural space that it inhabits in american history and then of course, the difficulty became you know trying to you know make this be something that would be uh that would involve the sheriff of the least populated county or least populated state there in Absaroka county um The fortunate aspect of it being that we have the uh Fort McKinney veterans' home just outside of Buffalo that's been there since you know, uh, a couple of years after 1876 in the response to the little big one battle and became the veterans home of Wyoming. And so I asked the local sheriff, I said, you know, if you guys ever had any interaction with the veterans home and they said, Oh yeah, you know, uh, whenever these guys pass away, like at, you know, they, the footlockers might have things in them that, you know, maybe shouldn't be there, whether it be weapons or ammunition or something like that. And we're called to go in and pick up those things and take them away. Well, they also find a, a Forschime shoebox with a million dollars in it. Opens up a mysterious past, you know, for Charlie the Stillwater, one of the veterans and one of the waivers, like that who sits out in front of uh, the Wyoming veterans' home and waves of traffic. And uh, I, I thought that's probably the conditions that Walt will find himself in.
0: I love it. I, I've often wondered how this painting became synonymous with with Budweiser beer and like like. Like you know, what what would connect these two seemingly at odd, well, not at odds, but totally disconnected? And that's a fascinating story, you know. Um, one maybe one reason that we're so fascinated with history is because uh, there are there are these crazy disconnected uh, connections that that we just can't see from modern times. Is is that you know? I and I, I understand the the um, political connections and, and all of that about why people still visit the little bighorn and, uh, and, and debate this. But uh, is it because people are looking for lost connections? Like, like why do we still obsess over historical events and connections like this?
1: Well, I think that there's an ambiguity, you know, to the battle of the little bighorn, which lends itself. Um, there's a mystery and, and you're never going to hear me badmouth mystery it's going to be a great way. to get to get the reader involved. You know, whenever you have that cipher of, you know, four plus X equals eight, you know, you're going to automatically think, well, what is X and try and solve that problem. And I think that, you know, of course, you know, as a historical reference, like, you know, historians have been trying to figure out, you know, what is X, you know, with the little bighorn, what it was that happened. And especially since, you know, one side didn't have any, you know, survivors like at the, you know, for the, Custer's literal command, look at there were no survivors other than a horse. Um, and so and the horse was unavailable for comment, you know, and so um, we kind of had to rely, you know, on the other side to, to come up, you know, with the, what it was that actually happened. And that's, you know, kind of been, you know, kind of held in abeyance, you know, an awful lot um, because Libby Custer, you know, p- mounted a campaign, you know, to make sure that w- Custer was revered um, as, you know, a hero, you know, for American youth. <laughs> and there was an awful lot of like material that was brought about by the American military in the american history um but it kind of neglected to give voice to the natives like that who were also a major portion of this particular battle and uh you know where we we finally you know got to finally hear a little bit of those voices not only the voices of 13 and 14 year old warriors you know that were actually participating in that battle like that who the transcriptions you know of their you know experiences in the battles you know were unearthed like that but also you know In the modern day, you know, James Welch's marvelous book, Killing Custer, like that to discover, you know, what were the resonances, you know, within Indian country um, from that particular battle like that? And uh, it's just going to be something that's going to be a cipher that's always going to be a question. I mean, you know, they they still bring cadets, you know, from West Point up to the Little Bighorn Battlefield to try and uh, teach them, you know, that you do not divide your battle forces into three portions before you see What's the size of the the, the, you know, the antagonists you're going to have to be taking on? There are a lot of questions that are still unanswered. And you know, for me, that's always going to be an interesting point. And then the native voices, you know, to, to come across them like that and to be able to give them voice um, to what it was that happened um, in that sunny afternoon, you know, in, the, in the, the banks of the Little Bighorn in 1876.
0: Well, Craig, we always look at history through a particular lens. When, and uh, for all of us, those, those lenses are different. Um, in Absaroka County, there's a very there's another lens to to view history through. And uh, what is what is the the Absaroka County take on on the incident that we're talking about here?
1: <laughs> well, you know that's that's <laughs> exemplified pretty much, you know, from Walt Longmire, the sheriff and protagonist in the books, and also uh, from Henry Standing Bear. Like that, I mean Henry. Uh, One of my favorite uh, scenes in the, some of my favorite scenes in the books are, you know, when Walt and Henry are, you know, kind of battling back and forth as to what it was, even the name, you know, of the battle. Like, I mean, you know, for the natives of the battle was called the Battle of the Greasy Grass. Um, It was not called (laughs) the the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And so there was a lot of controversy as to whether they were talking about the same battle an awful lot of the time. And then, you know, you've also got the history of these, like a type of things, you know, in that uh, after doing research for about eight years, you know, on this particular novel. I can tell you that, you know, that with all of the 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 books that I read, there are a lot of really bad custer and little bighorn books out there that have been written um <laughs> that, that really bear no resemblance to the reality of what it was that happened. And so I'm kind of pleased, you know, that, that it's gotten a re examination, you know, by a lot of really wonderful writers like at nowadays. Um, but you know, that that that's always going to be the case. Like at and the only thing that can give any kind of like you know competition to the amount of really bad books that have been written about the Little Bighorn, or the amount of movies and television shows that have been written about the Little Bighorn that bear absolutely no resemblance to reality whatsoever. Um, and one of my favorite scenes is the one where they're actually watching a, uh, a, a, a you know a a, a, a Little Bighorn uh, movie festival on TMC um, there at uh, the the uh, the Red Pony Bar and Grill and uh, to see the different perspectives that both walt and henry have been taught you know over the years like it, and uh you know how ludicrously you know unbearing with any of the facts like it, that a lot of these movies had and so uh, that's kind of fun too to kind of try and set the record straight and maybe get some information out there that maybe and certainly some details that weren't available up until you know most recently
0: both barrels publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author james p sumner He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. Publishing.com. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target, make the hit, move on, until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth you'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career the operator is the start of a new thriller series i expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come says ac fuller author of the crime beat and alex vane media thrillers Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time, author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. Speaking of Henry Standing Bear, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips was on the show just a few weeks ago uh, talking about his phenomenal new book, The Tinderbox Box. Uh-huh. And, um, y- you know, we I had to ask him, you know, about Henry Standing Bear and, and his connection with that. And um, one thing that that you find is with people that have been involved with Longmire, um, there are these are indelible prints that have been put on these people like these people like. Lou diamond will always be Henry standing bear, uh, that, you know, there's a connection there. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the same with, um, with, with Robert Taylor, you know, as being the the screen version of, uh, of Walt Longmire. And and we've talked before about the difference in, in Robert Taylor being the visual, um, representation in the TV show and the Walt of the books. They're, they're a little different. Uh, but you know having these people that you have become friends with and and still have a connection with today um do do these relationships connections do they affect the story going forward for you
1: not really like i mean you know but i mean it's 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 a an incredibly impactive medium you know television sure. and the motion pictures um they they have a large scale impact you know and especially visually um, but I had been writing the books for about seven or eight years, you know, before Warner Brothers came knocking on the door and said they wanted to make a TV show um, out of Longmire. Lickett. And so I, I had these characters, you know, pretty well solidified in my head. The other thing is, is that, you know, I'm a victim of um, what Wallace Stegner used to call the greatest, um, you know, uh, uh, piece of fiction and literary history is the disclaimer, at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off anybody alive or dead. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's kind of your job like it is to go and find interesting people and, you know, populate your books with them. So a lot of the characters in my books were based off of people that I'm very, very familiar with people that I know are related to have worked with, you know? And so, you know, it, it's very easy for me to hear those voices like at, uh, even with the impact of the television show, which was uh, really, really kind of, they did a, a marvelous job. Like it, I thought, you know, uh, and, and, and become and, and, and producing a television show based off of the books. they did a marvelous job but uh, but yeah, no it's a it's a separate but equal universe whenever you read the books. I
0: love it. Well, um, back to the heist. Um, Stillwater dies in, in the in the beginning, and he leaves behind um, some interesting uh, belongings, and that Walt is called in to investigate what you mentioned the million dollars cash. Uh, earlier. But there's also um, some some books and and, and writings that are found. What 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 was it that brought uh, what what the million dollars cash obviously uh, brought the attention of law enforcement (laughs) and people that want to look into it? But what about these other things? Uh, How does the mystery get started?
1: Well, I mean, the, the first thing, of course, is, is that there's a portion of a painting um, that's found in the footlocker too. Like that and uh, a lot of times, you know, whenever you know a, a painter is um, doing, especially something that's gonna be a large scale work, you know, something that's like 16 and a half by nine and a half feet tall, um, they're gonna do some smaller paintings, some studies to kind of get a feel, you know, for the light and the color and uh of the, the some of the more, you know, detailed aspects. Um, and the one that Walt, you know, stumbles across like it's a portion of a painting. But he it looks vaguely familiar. there's something about it that that he feels as though he must have seen it before or something. And as we come to discover like that it's actually rains in the face um very famous uh, chief like Lakota chief, and we discover like that that you know, this is a portion of that actual painting Custer's last fight. and it's only when Walt uh, goes to the bathroom in the red pony Bar and grill um, where Henry has chosen to put. His shrine to the Little Bighorn is in is in <laughs> actually in the toilet. Um, like it, which kind of gives you his view, you know, on this particular battle. Um, uh, that that Walt looks up and sees the actual, you know, poster and notices that portion of the painting. Like it, and sets him off on this trail. And uh, and that was kind of like the joy of this particular book. Like at, you know. I mean, whenever I'm thinking about you know doing a a Walt Longmire novel, I'm always trying to think of you know what's something new, something different, you know, that I haven't done before. And, uh, you know, certainly Walt Longmire had not been involved with anything that was anything remotely, you know, like a, an art heist. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe this would be something that, you know, would be a little bit different and it's a little bit lighter hearted book. Like it gives Walt an opportunity yeah. uh, to kind of deal with a situation like that. That's maybe not so much of a life and death situation, at least in the first portions of the book, um, things start getting a little bit serious, you know, in the latter part of the book, but, uh, in the beginning, like that, he's, uh, He's kind of enjoying himself, like you know. This is something that Walt really enjoys doing: is that research. Um, you know, with this, you know, particular book, I've been doing research on this book for almost eight years now. And uh, the reason I knew that it was eight years was because I saw that one of the episodes, you know, from Longmire actually used it as a subplot in one of their episodes, like it. And I've had a number of people who contacted me and said, "Well, did you get the idea, you know, for doing this book, you know, from the television episode?" And I'm like, "No." No, they got the idea for the television episode for me telling the producers about it eight years ago. it' like, kind of gives you an indication of like sometimes you know, I mean, this was a real mountain to climb like that, you know, I mean to include this you know kind of history in the books. um you know, I really had to make sure that I had you know all of my you know T's crossed my eyes dotted like that because whenever you you delve into something as specific as this particular portion of you know Western American history. You better make sure you get it right like that, because there are going to be people out there, they're going to carve you up. Uh, no pun intended. Like that. if you don't make sure you, know, you get all of your facts straight. Like that. And so, you know, for me, that was a an important point, you know, to not only approach it, you know, from a, a different perspective, from the perspective of the painting, you know, but to also make sure that you get it right. Like it, after about eight years of research, I finally felt as though I had enough packed into my head that that I could sit down and actually write this book. And uh, and hopefully, you know, I won't send anybody off down the trail of uh, of, of, of being incorrect, you know, because uh, you don't want people, you know, quoting from your books or using your books as research purposes. You got to make sure you get that stuff right. Like at Hollywood's done it wrong for so long. Let's make sure we get it right. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of a, a tonal shift for this book, um, the last couple of books with Depth of Winter and Land of Wolves um, have seen... Walt take a, a a more serious turn and the stakes have been extremely high and the aftermath has been uh ha, has shown that, that just how high those stakes have been um with the uh, with the way 2020 has been this year that none of us could have predicted um what a joy it was to get a Walt Longmire book that <laughs> let us it, it, take our mind off of the chaos and the crazy that has been this year. Now, obviously you are not, um, a prophetic voice, uh, you know, standing, uh, out West, you know, screaming into the void about what you know we should expect. But, um, it, you know, uh, what are your feelings about, uh, the way 2020 has been and your response with this book this year?
1: Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a ferocious optimist. I truly am like that. And I, I'm a firm believer, like it in science, like at a firm believer, like it in American society and culture, like at And I think, you know, as long as we're listening to the right voices, you know, obviously like it, this is a problem that, you know, will be overtaken like that. And, uh, you know, the difficulty for me, like at you know, is and when you live in a town of 25 in Northern Wyoming, I think I've been in quarantine for the last 17 years. I just haven't been aware of it. Like, that. <laughs> right. uh, you know, I, I kind of miss, you know, being out on the book tours, like at a I, I really enjoy, you know, I, I really enjoy the tours. I really enjoy meeting with the readers and talking with them. That's one of the great joys of my life like that. But that's only about like one month um, out of my year. You know, the rest right, of my of year course. is me sitting in a room, locked in a room with my imaginary friends, typing about them like that. And so, um, you know, my, my life really hasn't changed all that much. Like, that. but I, I certainly, you know, have, you know, a uh, uh, you know, empathy, like for the people who are out there, you know, dealing with these situations, the first, you know, responders, the frontline responders, like that. And, uh, you know, and the, the people that are dealing in the more, you know, stronger urban areas, like having the larger uh, population bases, like that. I just hope that people are staying safe and doing the right thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, hey, you know, we're, we're Americans here, like that. And we're all Americans, like that. And, and looking forward to, you know, like helping out our fellow uh, Americans in any way that we can, like that. It's one of the one of the chores that goes along with the job and one that I think, you know, that all true Americans look forward to, that it's a, it's an opportunity to something else to overcome like it. And we will, we will.
0: Absolutely. Um, Craig, you know, with next to the last stand being the 16th, uh, Walt Longmire mystery, um, it, does it, does it ever get, um, do the characters ever become too familiar, um, <laughs> to you? if you understand what I'm saying, like, is it, is it difficult to find new things to put them into year after year?
1: Really? Um, I, I think I was lucky. I think I was very, very fortunate, very, very lucky that I stumbled onto this ensemble, you know, of characters. And, you know, that's, that's one of the great joys of writing a series is, is that, you know, people read that first book and they think they know these characters. Well, then your job is to, you know, kind of be like a, a a blackjack dealer, you know, who like, you know, is flipping those cards out and they think they know those characters. And then you flip another card out that sends them in another direction and then another direction and another direction. And that's kind of the joy of, of writing a series of books is discovering that uh, if you've done your job correctly, these characters were, were never going to stop surprising um, the reader, like that there's always going to be something new um, to delve into in their character and to find out about them. And, uh, you know, and writing each book, you know, in, in many ways, it's kind of like, you know, it's like uh, conducting a choral group. You know, you have this group of voices and you're going to have to pick and choose, you know, which voices it is that are going to exemplify and be able to tell this story to its best benefits. And, uh, you know, that that means there's going to be a constant flux of these characters, an ebb and a flow of this ensemble. Like, that. And after every book, you know, there, there are emails that I get there, are the emails that say you beat up on wall too much. In the last book, (laughs) do take care of him in the next book, you know, and take it easy on Walt, would you? You know, which is very complimentary like that, because that means that they really believe that Walt is real like that. And I need to take good care of him. Like I had to make him last. like And then the other one was, is there was not enough of my favorite character, insert name here. You know, whether there was not enough of Henry in the last book or there wasn't enough Vic in the last book. or There wasn't enough Lucian in the last book or Ruby in the last book. I knew I'd reach a certain point whenever I started getting emails of people that said, you know, there really wasn't enough dog. In the last book like, and so, you know, <laughs> that's 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 very enjoyable too like that that these these characters are you know are very close for people like and they they care about them and and worry about them like that and wait for the next installment just like good friends uh, an opportunity to to meet up with them again like that and uh you know you don't take anything like that lightly you know whenever you're a novelist you know you you really have to realize like at that there are responsibilities that go along with that some of those responsibilities might be things that you know, that the readers, you know, are not aware of or or don't particularly appreciate like that. But, uh, you know, trying to do something new with each book, trying to, you know, trying to, you know, not you know, become formulaic and uh, doing the same thing over and over again. That's that's part of my responsibilities as an author of a series, too.
0: <laughs> One of the challenges that you've set for yourself uh, and that that people that are paying attention get to enjoy is that. Each Longmire mystery is uh, is advancing one season. So you tell a story across the whole year and we get to experience the world through kind of real time changes that happen like that. Um, Has that become uh, challenging for you or is it uh, one of those things that, well, you know, I know I'm going to have these sort of environmental changes and that may set up You know x or y for this story does it become something that helps you or is it a challenge that you have to you know find ways to solve new puzzles
1: no it's one of the joys it's it's one of the joys like that i mean you know anybody that's ever lived you know in the rocky mountain west knows that july is nothing like january um (laughs) so that that gives me very different you know uh environs you know for each book now the difficulty that does create it's interesting you should bring that up like that but uh The difficulty that does create is that if I stumble onto a plot for a storyline that I want to use, I have to ask myself, you know, there are two questions I ask myself. The first one is, how is this going to advance the development of these characters? Where are the characters that are going to be impacted by this? Where are they right now? And, you know, what kind of an effect is this going to have on them? And will it advance that? You know, and so, you know, I never want to do a book where the characters are just the same when the book ends as they were at the beginning. Um, I want them you know, to evolve. I want them to change. That's kind of important to me. The other one is, is that, you know, I may come up with a, a storyline such as this one, the one that takes place in Next to Last Stand that might not fit with the period of, you know, the seasons that, you know, that I'm at at this particular time. So I have to kind of like take that book and put it on the shelf and kind of wait until the season that, you know, will best exemplify um, that book comes around. Um, I, 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 you know, missed, you know, the winter, I mean, I missed the win- this summer for this particular book and then came back around like that. And, uh, I had to wait, you know, a full year, you know, before i mean, a full four years before I could sit down and actually write this book, you know, because I knew it was a summer book because they had to go out on the battlefield. They had to be traveling relatively easily, you know, around the high plains. And there just wasn't any way that I could do that as a winter book. I was going to have to wait until summer came back around for Walt Longmire for me to be able to do it. Which meant, of course, that Walt would be about a year older, but I I thought I could probably – he could suffer that and be all right. (laughs)
0: You you know, um, in South Mississippi, sometimes January is very much just like July. There's not (laughs) Not a whole lot of difference in seasons here. <laughs> you we do have that we,
1: advantage. You do yeah. have that advantage. Also the food and also the music. And yeah. I have well, to say, I guess we, so.
0: <laughs> we get we get three serious weeks of winter most
1: years. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that snowblower is not getting a great workout. Then is what I'm hearing. No, we use we
0: use those for leaves. We <laughs> lots of uh, lots of oak trees that need leaves cleared. That's uh that's that's usually what those get used for. Oh, man. Craig, the new book, Next to Last Stand, is out everywhere now. Um, It's in, in hardcover or Kindle edition if you prefer that. My favorite way uh, – of course, I have my hardbacks lining my shelf here – but my favorite way to consume Walt Longmire Mysteries is audiobooks these days. I absolutely love – and you've had the same narrator all the way through, so Walt has a very – specific voice. And, um, I, I absolutely love it. We're going to put links in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people to find what, what, what's your opinion on the audiobooks, by the way, while we're here, now, what, what do you think about that form?
1: I can only take like, you know, a, a certain amount of credit, you know, for what, what happened. It was a little bit of a perfect storm there. Uh, I, I had a short story like that, uh, was in Cowboys and Indians magazine that won the, uh, the, uh, Tony Hillerman short story. Uh, award. Look at, and one of the, the benefits was, is that you actually got to go have dinner with Tony Hillerman. And I had only written one book. The cold dish was all I had written. And Tony was like on his 20th book or something along those lines. And so I got to sit down and have a four hour dinner, you know, with he and his wife, like at my wife, Judy, like it, and we just hit it off. Like I mean, Tony was an old cowboy from Oklahoma, you know, I'm an old cowboy from Wyoming, like it. And so we kind of hit it off. Right. Yeah. Like at. And, uh, one of the things I remember, you know, uh, Tony, at that point in time, I was doing the negotiation for the audiobooks, um, you know, for the Walt Longmire series and, you know, Tony offered up the information. He said, well, you know, you know, see if you can get George Gwydal as one of your readings because George Guidall does all of mine. And, uh, and I've never had to look back. He does a marvelous job. And so the next day I was talking to recorded books and they said, well, we've got a couple of readers we're thinking about one of them is George Guidall," And I said, him. <laughs> and they said, you don't want to hear the others? And I was like, nope. oh, if he's good enough for Tony Hillerman, he's good enough for me. And uh, and George has just been an absolute joy. I mean, just an absolute joy um, to work with. Like he's just a, a consummate performer, um, such a sense of detail and everything yeah. that he does. I mean, one of the the great joys about whenever one of my books comes out is I get that phone call from George where we sit down and we go through the book. Like, and, you know, George's. You know he he wants to know the subtext. He wants to know all these different aspects of you know the the novels that you know that maybe a lot of people don't notice. But boy, it has an effect on that audio performance that he does. And uh, I wouldn't trade George for anybody in the world like that. He's just absolutely magnificent.
0: absolutely. I concur and highly recommend audio audiobooks, So we'll put links to all of it. So people can buy it in whatever form they prefer. Um, Craig, where can people find you online if they want to dig into all the great stuff you're up to?
1: Oh, there's like an, obviously my website, which is Craig Allen, Johnson.com. C R A I G A L L E N J O H N S O N.com. Um, we keep all of our information up there like that. You can get up to date just about everything. I'm on Facebook. Look at it. Uh, Craig Johnson official with a blue check, check mark. You can find me there. Um, I try and post, you know, just about on a daily basis. I'm on Instagram, like at uh, as Ucross Pop 25, which is, of course, Ucross Population 25 here in Ucross, (laughs) and uh, and 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 all the fine bookstores everywhere, like that, and uh, maybe some crummy bookstores too. I'm out there in them too, like (laughs) looking.
0: (laughs) Craig, it's always a joy and a pleasure to get to hang out with you and catch up. Um, I'm looking forward to next year and uh, keep. Keep those Longmire mysteries coming. We appreciate them.
1: Absolutely my appreciation and letting me on your show. I'll see you again next year. Sound good?
0: Sounds good. Thank you, Craig. Have a great day.
1: (laughs) You bet. You too.
0: (laughs) On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution the new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. Set in the Salvage title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, grab your copy today. Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones.